Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. This three-part miniseries, Innovation in Private Markets, looks at the disruptive innovations in the structure of private investing from the perspective of asset owners and managers. The idea was the brainchild of Daniel Adamson at Capital Constellation, the sponsor of these conversations. Daniel is the president of Capital Constellation and was a guest on the show last year. That conversation, describing the unique consortium of large asset owners, is a terrific primer for this miniseries and is replayed in the feed. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Suleiman Alderbas, the head of alternative investments at Kuwait's $130 billion Public Institution of Social Security, or PIFS. Suleiman arrived at PIFS from the Kuwait Fund for Arab Development in 2016, alongside Mashal Al-Othman, who joined to lead PIFS from the Kuwait Fund. Suleiman took part in a massive restructuring of the organization and portfolio. Our conversation covers Suleiman's early experience as an allocator, lessons from investing in 30 hedge fund of funds at the Kuwait Fund, and transition to PIFs. We discussed the restructuring that took place over the last four years that canvassed the people, process, and portfolio. Along the way, we touch on competitive advantages of size, knowledge transfer for managers, strategic stakes, and allocator innovation. Please enjoy this unique story of a knockdown and rebuild of a massive portfolio in this, the third and final episode of Innovation in Private Markets. Suleiman, great to see you. Hey, Ted. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Why don't we start with your initial foray 
into investing and how you got interested in the first place. All right. So born and raised in Kuwait, went to school in West Lafayette, Indiana at Purdue specifically, studied accounting and finance. And when you live in Purdue, you don't spend much money. Uh, you save <laughs> a lot. And I found myself investing a lot in, in the US markets and traveling a lot. And then after graduation, did a training program at Wolfram in New York at the midst of uh, the financial crisis, which was an amazing experience. And then joined Kuwait Fund six years there as part of the hedge funds team, and then have been at PIFS for the last five years. So in those initial forays in Wafra and the Kuwait Fund, what did you learn about investing that sort of created what you're trying to do at PIFS? I think it all started back in Wafra. My training program there started in January of 2009, coming out of school with all of those economic learnings that we've got, and then throwing everything out the door with quantitative easing and what's happening there. What Wafra gave me at that time was I got to rotate across different departments and different asset classes. And I fell in love with hedge funds. From that moment in time, I knew that I wanted to be an allocator and specifically in hedge funds. That multidisciplinary nature of hedge funds, this pursuit of excellence, of persistent alpha, always got me engaged. That drive for curiosity or intellectual curiosity really triggered me. Straight out of Wafra, I knew that I wanted to be an allocator and I wanted to be specifically in hedge funds. And that's why I joined Kuwait Fund. In Kuwait, there are basically three institutional investors of scale. Kuwait Fund had the smallest ticket. For me, it was an obvious choice because we had an open door policy. And if anyone was going to visit Kuwait, they might as well spend time with us if we had that open door rolling. So I know when we first met and you had become a client of mine back in the day at the Kuwait Fund, you had a very interesting approach to learning and investing in the hedge fund space. So why don't you talk about how you did it at the time? We had the weirdest approach. We had at any point in time, 30 fund of funds. That's a ridiculous number for anyone, especially <laughs> an outsider. But for us, what was amazing and the lessons that were taken out were that it gave me a real perspective and that most importantly, there's no right single model to being a successful investor. It gives me perspective in that I got the opportunity of looking at 30 different successful fund of funds and trying to understand what makes each of them successful. And then those were certainly the key takeaways that were then applied to what we're doing here at PIFS. So what were some of those key lessons and success factors? The first most important thing is knowing your purpose. In Kuwait Fund, we managed the book of 10% and we were called hedge funds. And we were always going through this dilemma of what was our role? Is it absolute return or is it to hedge the book? And from 2010, 2016, we had an amazing equity rally. And the IC members seriously loved equity performance and cared less about our standard deviation. And we were changing the model a lot. And that created certainly turbulence, but at the midst of it and throughout the whole program, we had one single benchmark and it was the HFRI Fund of Fund benchmark. And we beat that benchmark year in, year out. Going to PIFs, the first thing that was different was the name of the department. The name of my department is Alternative Investments, which is kind of weird because we already have a dedicated private equity, dedicated infrastructure, dedicated real estate department. So why alternatives, right? So the first thing that comes to mind there was that we fixed that allocator's dilemma and the GP dilemma of where would this investment sit? 
you already have those siloed departments. My department was hedge funds plus. This is all driven by certainly the vision of the CIO at that time, Michelle Uthman. And that certainly created clarity. And with that department, I managed two books and still do. An absolute return book, which has a clear purpose, and that is consistent low standard deviation returns or to dampen volatility. And the other book was an equity hedge book, which is this consistent drive of delivering market performance with control of volatility. So once you've clarified what the purpose is for these investments, what else did you learn about the implementation through seeing these 30 different organizations focused on the space? We had different types of fund of funds. We had the ones that were focused on the big shops, the ones that focused on small to emerging managers, and we had a lot of line items on a look-through basis. So when we first started, we had roughly 900 individual line items. Overlap there was probably 50%. And then we got fixated on understanding the real underlying exposures and the value add of every single additional investment that comes to the book. And one of the most important key takeaways was that while there's no right model to investment management, the key is both a combination of diversification and concentration and creating this anchor approach and satellites around it to create an all-weather program. How did you balance the learning model that you get from having all those exposures with probably a practicality that with 900 different line items it's going to be hard to generate much in the way of returns. At the end of the day, you're managing your managers. They have full discretion of managing their own books. As much as we wanted to improve that model, we were confined because the previous team that used to manage the hedge fund book at Kuwait Fund had left at market peak in 2007 to join the private sector. And when I joined, the oldest member was two years ahead of me and they were dealing with restructuring the book and the clear direction from the IC and that we're only going strictly with fund of funds. So you can't really be that much creative, but relating that to PIFs, I strongly believe that there's a role for everything. The first thing I did here at PIFs was, instead of going with commingled fund of funds, we went with SMAs. And SMAs with leading alternative asset managers that firstly act as extensions to my team and my book, and whatever we can do directly because of the guidelines that we have, be it size and concentration issues, is done through our fund of fund partners. Those fund of funds became anchors to my book, especially in the absolute term book. And the value add there was that we got complete access to the research portals. So any manager as a direct allocation, even if it's the biggest in the world, has to go through a defined process, review process. And that review process means reaching out those fund of fund partners, looking at the research papers, but only after we're completely done with our internal review, just to avoid any biases that might develop. So as you develop that transparency, what have you found that you apply to your own investing or some of the best ways that you've seen, say, fund-to-fund allocators investing in hedge funds? Back in the day, and starting off at Kuwait Fund, I used to be excited when I saw a fund of fund have an allocation to Millennium or Paulson or Ken Griffin, right? But then we realized that, wait a second, there's something wrong. We have indirect exposures to Paulson and Raven and Ken Griffin and all of those guys as if it's a direct allocation. And we're paying a lot of money for that. Then that's when 
a change in mentality happened in that there has to be a reason for anything that comes in. While we trust the manager's construction, there has to be a purpose in bringing that manager to our book. There has to be a marginal benefit. And that's when our philosophy and construction at that time in Kuwait Fund really changed. I know that there's a story from you and Michelle and the team moving from the Kuwait Fund over to PIFS. Why don't you kind of tell the story of what happened in that transition? Sure. So it was back in 2015 when I first got the call from PIFS to come and meet. That was the first time I ever hear of anyone from PIFS. We used to refer managers to PIFS, but there was never a response from PIFS directly <laughs> to us or to the managers. It always seemed and looked opaque because it was in a very unique situation. So I met and I met the manager of the department at that time. And we just chatted about the markets, about everything happening. And I look at the book and out of 89 items that they showed me, I only knew one. And I was scared. You had a book of 900 and you only knew one in their book. Exactly. And went back to Kuwait Fund, made sure there's clear transition there, joined PIFS in October of 2016. And there was a serious plan that this institution is going to go through a revolutionary restructuring plan. And the works were already underway in terms of creating a governance framework, uh, bringing in global consultants for a forensic and accounting review, etc. And when I joined at that time, PIFS had a very simple model. It was a centralized institution and the investment sector had only three investment departments. One was uh, direct investments, and they managed two books, an open-ended book and a closed-ended book. So it's by structure. The second was real estate, and they managed real estate and a bit of infrastructure. And the third was portfolios. And again, with the name, it's portfolios. And it's predominantly 60-40 model portfolios. The investment team at that time was 30 people. And the size of the pool? 100 billion. And they were sitting at 40% cash. And... They were pursuing legal action against the previous managing director at that time, who had a couple of misconduct and embezzlement charges against him. So they needed a team that was willing to restructure and deploy aggressively. So you were going from 10 billion to 100 billion, 40% cash. How did you and Michelle, the team that came in, think about how you wanted to restructure and put all that money to work? The first thing was, we had to build a team. We had to create a story. And Michel is an amazing visionary guy. He came in and he said, we're going to focus on three things. And it's the three Ps, the people, process, and the portfolio. The first thing to, to make this survive and thrive was that we had one vision. And this vision has to be uh, clear to everyone and that we want to be the best institutional investor in the region in the next five years. Let's bring in the best talent. And when we try to attract the best talents, we're looking for one single thing, and it's passion. Because everything can be managed and created with the tools that we have here. But passion is something that can't be replicated or created. Michelle joined in, in, uh, in February of 2017. And that was the official starting point of the new organization structure of PIFS, specifically for the investment sector. And that came the creation of a CIO role, which Michelle was at the helm of. And then came the breaking up of departments and the creation of new departments. So we went from the three investment departments to 
six front office departments with two support departments. So from the direct investment department, we got the open-ended became the alternative investment department. And then the close-ended transformed into the private equity and venture capital department. The portfolios department was broken down into the equities and fixed income department. The real estate was broken down into the infra and real estate. And then uh, they created the research department and the support services department. And from there, we had to do one thing. We have to make sure we drive fast while looking at the rearview mirror and making sure there are no zombies coming out. So while we had 40% cash, we had to redeem a lot of money. And I can certainly speak about the alternative investment department because I was at least closest to that. And at the end of the day, this effort that has happened, the alternative investment department has happened in every single other department at PIFS. What did that process look like over the last five, six years? It was a phenomenal and continues to be uh, an amazing experience, honestly. So the first thing that happened was when I took over the book, I was given a book of 80 line items. The biggest position was a 13% position and the smallest was 50 basis points. And the operation was a back office operation. We had filing rooms with not so great details. And my first day at the office was really crazy because they told me that IT was coming over. And the IT guy came in with two hard drives. And I was like, what's going on? And he was like, one hard drive is for the internet and your email. And the other hard drive is for the locally saved data. So I said, great. Then you have everything super secure in that file. I went there and there was nothing. <laughs> All right, so I had no information about those 80 line items. And we had to act real fast. So one of the great things was that I carried over a lot of the stuff that we developed and built at Kuwait Fund. And one of those was the DDQ, the diligence questionnaire. So we reviewed that diligence questionnaire, built in the missing links around how was the introduction made? Is there any third party or placement agent? Any dependency issues? What are your employee retention plans, et cetera? And we created this deck of 25 pages, went across the list and said, okay, there's information, but it's certainly missing and non-indicative. Let's rebuild that information. Let's rebuild the qualitative and quantitative information. So we created an Excel sheet for every single line item in the 80. We sent every one of those to every administrator to fill in the details for the last at least 10 years. And then the team internally started reconciling numbers and verifying and auditing, making sure the numbers are good. Once that was done, we sent out the DDQs. What did you find? Oh, it was bad times because when you don't have information, you're at a disadvantage and you're weak. And the problem was, this is everyone's money. We only have one pension system in Kuwait. I and colleagues here spent all-nighters at PIFS because honestly, I couldn't go home to friends and family and talk about work because at that time, everything was almost miserable. <laughs> so we created the DDQs, said, okay, we have to send those DDQs and those DDQs are going to be shockers to a lot of people and we have to be smart about it. So we decided to send them three weeks ahead of Christmas and said that everything expected to be received a week ahead of Christmas so that the latest person would send us everything before Christmas and then we'd have Christmas all for ourselves with no noise, none of that. And then the emails came and the phone calls started to come. It was a weird experience. 
So we realized that there's a big issue there. And we are also to be blamed for that, right? Because we were passive and the managers were passive. And any relationship is, at the end of the day, is a spectrum, right? And we were at both ends. And we told everyone that anyone who's willing to meet us halfway will work with. Anyone that is not willing to make the changes necessary will be out of the book. So the 80 line items made around 12% of PIFs at that time. And a year ago, PIFs went through a strategic asset allocation model and plan that was created by Cambridge Associates. And you know, with consultants, it always depends on the amount of information you provide them. And there wasn't really that much information at that time to provide, but we went with it. And the plan was to grow the alternatives book from 12 to 16%. So once we got all the information in, the qualitative, the quantitative, we said, okay, it's time to do a global trip. And my team and I visited every single line item of those 80, came back in May of 17, and started sending the redemption letters. How many did you end up keeping of the 80? We redeemed 60% of the book. Luckily for us, it was an amazing bull market. So when we filed our redemptions, our NAVs were like that the end of 2017 to mid-2018. So the good, the bad, and the ugly were all performing exceptionally well. But our biggest issue was dependency issues, compliance issues, legal lawsuits, right? And that's what we tried to recreate here at PIFS. So in the process of weeding out this portfolio, you had mentioned of all these line items, you only had recognized one. Did you find real managers that just weren't meeting compliance or were there all kinds of things that you never would have touched if you had the original decision? It's a mixed bag, honestly. It was compliance issues. It was portfolio fits. It was performance. We've been investors for 10 years. And if you look at the returns, they're amazing. But we lost all of those returns because of exchange rates. So in reality, there was no value add. You're an investor of this scale. You can't really take that niche exposure in on a direct basis. And was that consistent outside of the alternatives department across private equity, across the equity portfolios, that there's just this gale force need to restructure the book? Yeah. There was because nothing wrong with those managers, but they were subscale managers. And with subscale managers, you get a lot of position sizes, and then you get a lack of uh, ability to monitor. And with a team of only 30 at that time, that was impossible. So now within your book, you've redeemed <laughs> 60% of the managers. So it was whatever, 10, 12% of 100 billion. You have billions of dollars to put to work. How did you do that over the last couple of years? How did you think about it and what'd you do? In the bull market, right? In the bull market, no one wants your money. But at the end of the day, it's a network effect and the people that we knew and the amazing job that different heads of departments did, led by Michelle Othman, in terms of reintroducing PIFs to the world. And we did major global trips. We were present in every investment conference there is. We reestablished relationships with prime brokers and capital introduction firms. And that was the start of it. One message we wanted to send clearly was that we are not looking for returns. We're looking for people and process. We are a long-term investor. We'll show it over time. And we're patient capital. We're going to persevere. 
So if we don't get the allocation today, it's fine. We won't go to a second tier manager because we didn't get the top tier. Talk me through your process in deciding what you think is the top tier manager. It's a lot of things. It all starts with what purpose does that specific manager bring to the book? So the first thing we did was we created a portfolio for the absolute return and for the equity hedge. And we said, a lesson out of Kuwait fund was let's forget about the benchmark. For the absolute return, we have to deliver absolute return year on year out. So with that came the rejection of the bucketing of the HFR index. And what we got from the CIO at that time was complete autonomy and trust. And we started building it. So if I go back specifically to the absolute return book, it had four main components. The first was the strategic book. The second was the multi-strats. The third was the relative value. And the fourth was event-driven. It's an ongoing process that we change the global macro bucket into a diversifiers bucket. And that got some elements from the relative value. And we no longer had a global macro bucket. And there, the anchor for that book is the multi-slots and specifically the fund of funds. And then with regards to the equity hedge, we had three buckets, the activist, the market neutral, and the directional. And the anchor there was the market neutral. How did you think about position sizing, both, I guess, in dollars and then as a consequence, the number of managers you had in the books? Right. So there's no right number uh, for a portfolio, but we realized that if anything, looking at the previous fund of funds that we invested in, and that we don't want to be over diversified because then it's going to be costly and we're going to be blaming the high fees and everything around it. So we said the max we're going to have in any one bucket or portfolio is 30, right? And we started from there. The first building blocks of the absolute return book were the fund of funds because we wanted access to the markets and we wanted access to research. And most importantly, we wanted access to knowledge and the sharing of knowledge. This is something we picked up from Kuwait Fund. So when I joined in Kuwait Fund 2010, everyone was coming out of the great financial crisis and everyone was negotiating fees with hedge funds. And we said, we won't negotiate fees. Everyone else will do that job. We're gonna make sure we have MFNs. What we wanna make sure we have is we wanna have training sponsorship programs for our analysts. And at that time, we got out of it with 40 programs, and then we rolled over that model across all departments for Kuwait Fund. So this is the same thing we did at PIFS. We went to the fund of funds, told them what we want to build and create, and we created information knowledge transfer, and we made sure we get access. Again, it all goes back again to honesty and reaching out to people that have influence, people that are leaders in the industry. I remember my first days at PIFS, I used to talk regularly to Andre Perold. While he wasn't an investment manager for us at Weight Fund, he's a person that I really look up to. And I told him, listen, Andre, I'm in MS. Uh, I need you to send me whatever white paper we have on an endowment model, on portfolio construction, et cetera, uh, as an academic and as a practitioner. And then I reached out also to Gideon Berger from Blackstone. And I told him, listen, I have this mess. I need you to help. What do I do? And I started utilizing those relationships to get different perspectives and the cap intro business to get the allocation and relationships and the access and capacity, honestly. So with that, we started building the book. And what we wanted to build was that 
for the absolute return to dampen the volatility. We wanted the volatility there to be around 3% with a return of 5 to 6%. With the equity hedge, we knew that the market neutral multi-strats would give us that consistent strong alpha with a bit of volatility. We created that sleeve and then we said, activists make sense. Let's allocate to activists. But for instance, one single position in my market neutral bucket is the equivalent of all of the line items I have in the activist bucket. And for the directional bucket, we decided that at that time we had a huge beta to equity markets and we weren't making any money. And we said that we're going to take a low directionality approach of zero to 40. But again, it has to make sense. So for the equity edge bucket, we said, let's look at the three regions of the world. In the US, it's all about execution speed and technology. And we're going to go with the setups. We're only going to go occasionally with the fundamentals that have an edge or something differentiated. Asia, we said we're going to go only with the market neutrals. With Europe, that's the only place that we thought fundamental managers would work. And how did you get the conviction to invest in the fundamental managers in Europe, but market neutral in Asia? Where did those insights come from? It comes from experience and specifically the book. So we had probably at that time, 20% of our book in Asia and redeemed almost all of it. To me, Asia was something that was fascinating, but I've never visited. And we said, we won't do any single investment unless we get really comfortable with Asia. And then only when we visited Asia and every single country, be it Singapore, Tokyo, China, and Hong Kong, realized that, all right, we can't label it as Asia because every country has its different culture and way of doing things. So we have to change our approach and realize that there it's, it's a beta market, it's a volatile market, and it would only make sense on a net basis to do it through a market neutral approach. That's my change in the future, right? Because one of the important lessons here is that you have to be flexible. This is one of the most important teachings for me growing up in that I used to think that when I decide I can't go back, what I realized at PIFS is that it's okay to change your opinion. And it's okay if even if you have conviction to shelf an idea for a bit and go revisit it. That really worked for us. And then as you moved over to Europe, you came to the conclusion that you wanted to invest in directional fundamental managers. What was it about Europe that led you to that conclusion? Europe was really interesting because it had an amazing number of fundamental, amazing long short managers. And there weren't really much market neutral managers there. And it didn't make much sense for a market neutral manager there because the way that it's all a single currency and then it's kind of Northwestern uh, Europe versus Southern Europe and the cyclical uh, drive around it. Through meeting those managers, we decided that those three managers are the only managers that are going to be in, in our book. Yeah, so there are only three. Only three. So when you put this all together now, a couple of years later, you had these fund to funds for information sharing and network, you're meeting with lots of managers. What does that book look like today in terms of the mix of types of strategies and implementation vehicles that you have in it? I'll take you through the return, right? And then that would certainly translate into the construction itself. When we took over the book uh, in October 16, the annualized return for the AID was 
1% over 3% volatility. It was bad. The sharp was negative 0.2. We had the beta of 77 basis points to the HFI fund weighted composite. We had a negative 1.3% alpha. We had the beta to the MSCI of 24 basis points and a negative alpha. So there was something wrong. And as bad as it is, we are still underperforming the benchmark. Almost four years later, so by the end of December, the book collectively had a 7% return on a 6% volatility. So that's a sharp of one. And the beta to the HFI fund-weighted composite came down from 77 basis points to 63. What was amazing was that the alpha turned around from a negative 1.3% to a positive 3%. And looking at the MSCI specifically, you can easily say that it could easily been done because we had a bull market. We maintained the same beta to the MSCI. So it's still the 0.24, but with a positive 3% alpha. So how was that done? I think it was done through hard work, patience, and the resilience and the passion of an amazing team that I'm part of. A big driver of that performance is the strategic book. And that strategic book specifically is something that's really unique and really adds color to the name AID. When we moved over with the 49 items that we took from the open-ended book, we asked the private equity team to give us the GP acquisition strategy. And that strategy at that time made 6% of our book, of NAV. We grew that book to 14% of NAV, 20% on a commitment basis. And there is where our strategic relationships and strategic investments sit. And that's predominantly led by Wafra. And that's we pursuing two things specifically. Uh, it's growth strategies with small to emerging managers through the constellation strategy, and then uh, mature managers, uh, be it Stonepoint and the likes. So why don't you talk more about that? Stonepoint's a private equity fund. Right. So this is an ownership stake in Stonepoint. Exactly. How have you thought about tilting your investments from just being an LP, or you call it a passive LP, to being effectively part of the GP? When it sat in the private equity book, it was an investment that was labeled by an IRR and MOIC. When it came to us, it was way much more than that. And that's where the strategic and asset owner mentality kicked in. So some of the stuff we're doing there is that today we sit at 21 strategic relationships. And a huge focus for the institution is synergy. How can we synergize those relationships? And we're currently working, for instance, with the strategy department here at PIFS and introducing those strategic relationships to the strategy department and trying to create some type of strategic relationship and cooperation between the state of Kuwait and those strategic relationships. Initially, that strategy was on a deal-by-deal basis. And then we decided that we have to open up the strategy to the outside world. So through consideration, we did it through a JV, initially with Alaska and uh, RELPAN. And with other uh, mature stakes, we invited our friends over at the KIA Kuwait Fund and uh, now working with other institutional international investors. So how many of these 20 or 30 relationships are from Constellation? And then how many have you done on your own? 
on our own directly, we haven't done anything. It's almost entirely through Wafra. If we take a step back, PIFS has three investment arms, and it's Wafra New York, Wafra Real Estate in Kuwait, which is involved in MENA and GCC real estate, and Wafra International, which is focused on local and MENA equities. So with regards to the strategic relationships that we have, we have 14 GPs where we own 5 to 30% of that specific business. And we have six businesses where we have revenue share out of that. And what's most interesting in that, in addition to trying to create synergy, was trying to create business and reintroducing those firms and their products initially to different departments at PIFS, and then externally to whatever relationships we have. So out of those 21 relationships that we have, PIFS currently has LP money with 10 of them. And one thing that we're currently working on is that we're creating this feedback form where it's kind of a survey that is going to go out internally at PIFS initially every six months. So each head of department and this team will get a template where they mark or tick across which of those relationships they have relationships with, and they evaluate their experience, not only evaluate their experience as an investor, but as an outsider. And what value add can we create? What guidance can we give? What interest do we have in whatever space? So we want to take away assumptions. We want to take away stuff that is not said and done. A relationship doesn't have to be about going to a meeting, either getting money or not. We want that feedback. Why didn't you get the money? And why did you get the money? And why are you still an investor? That's what we're trying to continually do. What have the results been of those investments where you have a stake and you're working on these synergies compared to the rest of your book where you're an LP? What we love about, about them is their cash flow businesses. And you get this continuous coupon right? Which initially started in 2016 as adding only 50 basis points to 1% to my book. As of December end, they contributed 5% to return. In 2020, my, uh, my book delivered a 12% performance. Of that 12%, 5% came from the strategic book. So now, actually six days ago, uh, the new strategic asset allocation plan was implemented. And with that, I'm going to be spinning over my strategic book into a newly created bucket. And it's going to be called the opportunistic book. It's a completely different business and lens because it has a different, unique purpose in that we have high conviction in those managers and we want to support them in whatever way we can. If it comes to creating sidecars with them, we'll do it. What are some of the other innovations that you've thought about in managing a pool of such large size that's different from just, we're going to go out and invest in funds? So the first thing that comes to mind is the demographics of Kuwait. Compared to other pension funds, we're kind of at an advantage because we have a young population. So out of the Kuwaiti nationals, around 60% are aged less than 30 and around 40% are aged less than 20. So with that, you get no sudden liquidity needs. And you get the ability to invest aggressively in private markets. You get the ability to take long-term views and invest with them. What do you think 
your evolution will be with these investments over the next five or 10 years? It's twofold. So we have the growth and mature strategies, and we have the co-investment effort that we only started in May of last year. It's been a rewarding experience ever since. What we want to do is similar to what we did in Constellation. We want to bring other like-minded institutional investors in only when the time is right, because we're willing to take that unfunded pooled risk because we're doing it with Bofra. And when we have the right constructs, we want to be able to attract other institutional international firms to the table and probably dilute ourselves out and diversify that and expand the opportunity set for that program. Back to the innovation point you raised earlier. So the last three years for us were about taking risk. And the next three years for us are about being honest with ourselves and taking smart risk. So for instance, we did good in COVID, but we could have done better. And what's hurt us the most in COVID was the social credit exposure. And one of the lessons and takeaways there was that we still are going to do social credit, but we're going to do it in a different route. All esoteric social credit is going to strictly be done through close-ended fund formats. And that is because while we're long-term investors, we don't want the market to take advantage of us or other investors. We're only going to do investment-grade social credits in open-ended fund formats. Another innovation is that up until last year, we never invested in a TMT-focused manager. What we did was we partnered with one of the best TMT managers, and we liked the portfolio and the hedge fund specifically, but we felt that we could up the volatility there. And what we did was that we said 70% of that book will be in hedge funds. And 30% is going to be in co-investments. And those co-investments are going to be funded out of the hedge fund. So instead of keeping money in our books here and calling money whenever it is needed, it's going to be directly invested through the hedge fund. As you've gone through this restructuring of the book, what lessons have you learned that either you would do differently the next time, or if someone else was looking at making significant changes in their portfolio, they might want to think about? It all depends on the culture. Whatever you're trying to do, it's the culture that you're trying to create things within. We couldn't have flourished and delivered through the challenges of 2020 without the resilience, commitment, and courage, and most importantly, harmony. There has to be harmony, harmony within the team and harmony across the whole ladder up to the IC. It's about talent being a top priority, the notion of hiring, investing, and most importantly, retaining that talent. I think we went through an amazing experience in COVID. So when COVID hit, for us here at PIFS, it was a seamless transition because leading up to COVID, we already had the cloud and everyone was active on teams. It came from top management that everyone, business is as usual, markets will come back. Just make sure you're connected to your managers. And the managers that communicated, the managers that built that knowledge gap are the ones that stayed in the book. Surprisingly, we had more ICs last year and during COVID than ever before. And this really gave us confidence because every institutional investor proclaims to be a long-term investor. But when everything stops working, things change. 
And I'm really proud to be part of this institution. Now, when you go through that type of significant restructuring, inevitably, either internally or in the investment decisions you make, you won't get everything right the first time. What were some of those stumbling blocks on the path from where you started to where you got today? So remember that Asia market neutral, it didn't work (laughs) (laughs) because Japan was kind of boring for a really long time and then it really ripped off. And now we're going back to the drawing table and revisiting Asia. And this is coming at an institution level where we're working with the research department and thinking about Asia and how can we approach Asia. And for me, I want Asia to be 15 to 20% of my book over the next five years, coming out of a 3% position today. So how do you balance this mission and vision and importance of this message to communicate that you are a long-term investor despite what happened five or six years ago in the public eye? And then you have a situation where in a relatively short period of time, you need to make a change. It's the reputation you built as an investor, right? So I remember when COVID happened, we started getting calls for allocations. And I specifically remember one manager calling me and telling me, Suleiman, I have 1 billion of capacity and you're one out of five. And on that specific phone call, I told him, we're going to take 200 of that, but I can't commit on April 1st. I can come in in May 1st because we had a huge line of people wanting to go into the IC. When May came about, I didn't have my 200 million, even though I got the approval for it. I only had 60. So we will be honest and frank, and it all depends on being honest and frank, but we have expectations to be met. And on on Asia specifically, and that market neutral manager, we didn't kill that investment because of performance. We were fine stomaching underperformance, but what we were afraid of was a business risk. And that manager was losing assets, but We went through similar experiences in the past where other managers were losing assets and we stuck to them. And when we stuck with them, we saw change because we need to see change, not only hear about it. And when we stuck with them, we got better terms. And a year later, when they delivered on the restructuring plan, we injected capital to them. And it's one of the best amazing relationships we have so far. Well, Suleiman, I I can't let you go without asking you a couple of fun closing questions. So why don't we go ahead and do that? What is your favorite hobby and activity outside of work and family? My favorite would be traveling. I love traveling a lot, meeting new people, experiencing new cultures. That's probably my favorite hobby (laughs) pre-COVID. During COVID, it's, it's a lot of walking, running, and spirituality. What type of spirituality? Mostly meditation. I'm doing a lot of breathing exercises and work there. What's your most important daily habit? Now it's meditation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What's your biggest pet peeve? I have a lot. It's grammatical mistakes. But other than that, it's generalization, right? So saying that active management is done or hedge funds charge high fees. It's a huge industry. It's all about selection. What's your favorite book? My favorite book has to be one written by uh, Paolo Coelho, and specifically it's uh, Adelf. Adelf, tell me about it. So it's about this trans-Siberian trip that the author takes 
it's this amazing spiritual journey that he takes throughout that journey, experiencing inner emotions, be it fear, anxiety, etc., and confronting that and being okay with it. So what's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? My biggest mistake has to be not talking to people when I am going through a lot of emotions and not really opening up. That notion of keeping everything internal is daunting, honestly. Everyone has to be fine with with sharing their emotions and sharing their feelings. And it's one of the things that I've really adapted to and I'm really fine with. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Discipline and balance, finding balance in everything you do. And last one, what life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Make mistakes, accept them, embrace them, and move on. That's the best thing you can ever do. Suleiman, this is super interesting. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, Ted. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 